Well, when I was in high school, I, I learned about this guy who had had a, a really rough, um, rough life. He was only four years old when his mother uh, died in childbirth. And uh, he grew up in a dysfunctional family. It was actually an abusive family. And uh, when he was 17 years old, he was kicked out of his, his house and um, left to live on his own. No family, you know, no support network, essentially homeless. He worked hard for several years, and he worked his way up the ladder. He became successful. His, his peers began to really respect him. He had really come a long way. But at the height of his success, he was accused of sexual harassment. And everything in his life came crashing down. Now, I believe that he was innocent, actually. In fact, I know he was innocent. But it didn't make any difference because his life had been ruined. The conditions of his life were agonizing. Everything seemed stacked against him. But despite his situation, God did something incredible in his life. If you looked at the passage we'll be looking at today, you might have pieced together that this is the story of Joseph in the Bible. His mother dies in childbirth. His, his brothers are abusive to him. He was sold into slavery. He was left to live on his own. Today we're going to look at how God took the life of one young man and his desire to live for God, his, his faith that God, was, God had his hand on his life. And we're going to look at how God did something incredible through him. And the accounts that we're going to look at this morning, um, Joseph is not walking on water. He's not parting the Red Sea. He's not, he's not feeding 5,000 with a few loaves of bread. Instead, he is taking small steps of faith that God uses to make a big difference. If you'd like to follow along, um, you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 37. And that's, that's where this all begins, and that's where we begin learning about Joseph's life. Joseph grew up in a big family. He had 11 brothers. Most of them were older than him. 11 brothers. And one of Joseph's chores as a you know, young teenager was to go watch the sheep that his, his father owned. And his brothers would actually do this with him. And they would go out... Um, and Joseph would notice that his brothers were doing things that they weren't supposed to do. And they, they were doing all sorts of um, bad things. And Joseph would report back to his father what his brothers were doing. And his brothers obviously did not like this. In fact, they had begun to really hate Joseph. But that wasn't all. You see, Joseph was the favorite of his father, Jacob. Jacob had a special love for Joseph. It was beyond partiality. It was beyond unfair. Joseph was the blatant favorite. And this was most clearly represented through a robe that Jacob had specially fashioned just for Joseph. It was a beautiful robe with many colors. And um, when Joseph was a teenager, Jacob gave this, this robe to him as a special gift. And it made his brothers hate him even more. Starting at verse 5. One night Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field, 
tying up bundles of grain, and uh, suddenly my bundle stood up. And all your bundles gathered around and bowed low before mine. Can you believe that? Isn't that cool? I mean, what, what could that mean? A little later, he had another dream. This time, there were stars bowing down before him. And guess what? There were 11 of them. That's how many brothers he has. Well, what could this mean? What could this mean? So sh- surely Joseph was going to become king and his, and his brothers would bow down to him. The passage tells us that they hated him all the more because of these dreams and the way he would talk about them. Well, one day Joseph is sent out to go check on his brothers and they're way off, you know, kind of, kind of a little bit of a distant walk. And um, Joseph is coming along and they see him in the distance. They recognize him. And so and one of them suggests, you know, let's get rid of this, this, this brother of ours, Joseph. I can't stand him anymore. Let's, let's, let's make it look like he was attacked by a wild animal. Well, Joseph arrives, and, and, and as he's arriving, they beat him up. They just pummel him, and then they throw him in a pit. They, take that, they rip that robe off of him, and they throw them, him down in this pit. And, and uh, they, they're debating what to do with him. And as they're debating about this, some traders are coming along down, down the road, and they say, hey, why don't, we, why don't we just sell him to these traders? And, uh, and that way, you know, we don't have to leave them in this pit. And so they sell them to these traders. And when, eventually, when they get home to their dad, they take this, this beautiful robe, and they, they douse it in some, some blood from one of the animals. And they say, Dad, here it is. This is, this is Joseph's coat. We found it on the road. It must, it must have been attacked by some wild animal. And their father goes into mourning. But they, they just go on with their life. The traders were heading down to Egypt, and when they get there, they sell Joseph to Potiphar. And Potiphar is one of the highest officials in the land of Egypt. The passage tells us that God was with Joseph in his difficulty, and that he found favor with all of his superiors. It tells us that he worked hard, and he soon became one of Potiphar's you know, favorite guys. And Potiphar actually put Joseph in charge of his whole, his whole household, all of his duties, and Essentially, what Pot- all Potiphar had to do every day was decide what he wanted to eat. Joseph took care of everything. He had, he had incredible responsibilities. Well, Potiphar had a wife, and she began to desire Joseph. And so one day, she invites Joseph to come sleep with her. But Joseph refuses. Day after day, she keeps mentioning it to him, pressuring him, reminding him of this opportunity. But Joseph is a God-fearing man, and he does not compromise. One day, Potiphar's wife has had enough. She approaches Joseph, she grabs his shirt, and she demands that he sleep with her. Joseph runs away, but in the struggle, she holds on to that shirt. She's got it. When Potiphar comes home that evening, she says, That guy Joseph tried to rape me. Potiphar is furious. He throws Joseph into prison. As Joseph is locked up in prison, he begins to look at his life, and he begins to realize that this is probably where he will die. Accused of raping the captain's wife, he has no hope of ever getting out. 
By all reasonable assessments, all reasonable assessments of his situation, he will die locked up without a family, without freedom, without any purpose in life. I can't imagine the discouragement he must have felt as as he went from such a high position to a position of utter hopelessness. How can I really believe, God, that you are real when my life has been so painful? How can I believe that life is worth living when it's been such a train wreck for me? And now I'm trapped in this situation that I can't get myself out of. You said, God, that they would one day bow down to me. But now I've been convicted of trying to rape the captain's wife. I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. I'm sure the thoughts that go through our heads in dark times are the same thoughts that that went through Joseph's mind as he sat on that cold prison floor. This should have been the end of Joseph's story, but Joseph had faith in something that we call God's sovereignty. Joseph believed that God had complete control over the universe, and that if God said that he would bring him to a good place, then God was going to do it. Many men would be tempted to commit suicide in Joseph's situation. But Joseph had faith that God had something better in store for him. And so he worked hard, and he waited in faith, waiting on God. Today we're going to look at four actions that require faith. And um, the first, this is the first one, waiting. Waiting requires faith. Sometimes God calls us to act, and sometimes he calls us to wait. Typically we think of, of uh, taking action as being the more difficult of these things. Just, you know, stepping out and taking action. We think of that as being pretty difficult. But really, waiting can be very difficult, too. When you're looking for a new job, it is difficult to wait. When you're taking care of a loved one who is chronically ill, waiting for them to get better is difficult. When you're waiting for a child to mature, to change their behavior, to return to God, it is difficult to wait. When you are waiting for a spouse to consider faith, when you're single and you're waiting for the right person, when you're waiting for the work you've put into your marriage to finally pay off, waiting indefinitely can knock the wind out of you and make you feel like a fool for just hoping that something could change. You begin to second-guess things that you thought you knew for sure. You wonder, have I taken a wrong turn somewhere? Have, have, I, have I made a mistake? Am I, am I here forever? When you're in the depths of despair, when it feels like you've been waiting forever, there are two temptations that we begin to struggle with, I think. The first one is the temptation to give up. We can stop trying to work on our marriages. We can stop trying to reach our family members with the love and the truth of God. We can stop trying to do the right thing at work. We can stop trying to fight that battle with a chronic temptation. It is tempting to give up. The second temptation is to take matters into your own hands. If you've been struggling financially and you're tired of waiting around for something to happen, an opportunity arises to do something dishonest. 
to do something that you know, you know it's not right. It becomes tempting to compromise in order to find relief from the burden. It's tempting. Both giving up and taking matters into our own hands are two actions that refuse to wait on God. And what we are really refusing here is we're refusing the lessons that God wants to teach us in these times of waiting. They have a purpose. The formation of character that God wants to do in us. You know, in, first, in Peter's first letter, he uh, uses this illustration of uh, refining gold to, to be kind of an illustration for what the Christian life is like sometimes. And, he's, and he, he says, you know, we're being refined like, uh, like a refiner refines gold. And, and to purify gold, what a craftsman would do is he would take gold and he would put it in this ladle. And, and he would take the ladle and he would stick it into this, you know, just incredibly hot furnace, stick it right in the furnace. And while, while the gold was in the furnace, it would begin to boil and, and uh, melt. And as it did that, the impurities in the gold, remember gold is heavy, the impurities would begin to rise to the surface. And then the craftsman would pull it out. He would scrape those impurities off. Throw them, throw them away. And then he would do the same thing. He'd put it right back in the furnace, and it would, it would, it would boil again. And he would do this over and over again, each time scraping the impurities off the surface until he had pure gold. And this is the same thing that God does with us. He uses these periods of waiting to change us, to train us, to prepare us for, for greater things. He is forming us and refining us in the fires of patience. When we are in the fire of difficulty, what we'll notice, I don't know, if, I don't know about you, but I know, I've noticed this about myself. When I'm going through a difficult time, I will just re- realize, you know, there's, there, these things will come to the surface. And I'll think, where did this come from? You know, bad attitudes. You know, a temptation that I haven't struggled with for a long time. All these things rise to the surface. And I'll say, where did that come from? And what God is doing is he's bringing these things to the surface so that we can deal with them, so he can deal with them. And he wants to refine us. He wants to purify us. And he will take what is on that surface and he'll scrape it off and throw it away. Joseph's ability to wait in the dungeon of Pharaoh's castle and our ability to wait in the midst of difficulty is totally dependent on this virtue of hope. Joseph had every reason to believe that he would be in that dungeon until he died. Yet he did not lose hope because he believed that God would carry out the dream that he had given him so many years before. Joseph had faith in God's sovereignty. He had faith that God still had control over the situation, even though it didn't feel very good at the moment. One thing I've realized is that when we look at these waiting periods, what we, what, we, what we should really realize is it's not really waiting at all. Waiting is not waiting. Waiting is a lot more like obeying in the details. You see, you know, when, when we're, you know, if you're struggling financially, God doesn't call you to do nothing and wait for something to happen, right? No, he doesn't call us to do that. He calls you to work hard at what you're already doing. He calls you to reevaluate your spending and say, say where can I cut something? He calls us to reevaluate. He calls us to reevaluate. You know our 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 income. Is this a sustainable form of income? He doesn't call us to do nothing as we wait. God gives us plenty of things to do while we're waiting. What did Joseph do while he waited in that cell? Do you remember? The passage says this: Before long, the jailer put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. 
over everything that happened in the prison. The jailer had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. He was working hard. He was trying to earn favor with his superiors, hoping, believing that one day he would be set free. Beginning at chapter 41, two years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was sitting on the bank of the Nile. And in his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come out of the river. And they began grazing on the marsh grass. Then he saw seven more cows come up from behind them out of the Nile. But these were scrawny and thin. These cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank. Then the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven fat, healthy cows. And at this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up. But he fell asleep again, and then he had a second dream. This time he saw seven heads of grain, plump and beautiful, growing on a single stalk. Then seven more heads of grain appeared, but these were shriveled and withered by the east wind. And then these thin heads swallowed up the seven plump heads. And then Pharaoh woke up and realized it was a dream. The next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by these dreams. Pharaoh finds out that Joseph can interpret dreams. And so he sends for Joseph at once. And so they, they bring Joseph up out of the prison. They give him a quick shave. They give him a clean, clean clothes. And they bring him right before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I have had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means. But I've heard that you, you can interpret dreams. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph says. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. So Pharaoh tells Joseph the two dreams. And after he does that, Joseph responds. Both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. What Joseph has done here is he's recognized God's voice in Pharaoh's dreams. And this is our second point. Recognizing God's voice is an action that requires faith. A lot of people, you know, have a tough time recognizing God's voice. I think, I think there's a lot of people who struggle with that, you know, trying to discern, when is God speaking to me? Will he ever speak to me? There are a few principles I want to share with you today about hearing God speak to you. First, the primary way God speaks to us is through the Bible. The Bible is a collection of many things that God did in the past, things that he said in the past to other people, but they are also applicable to us. They were meant for us. They teach us about who God is, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what's important to him. That's why it's so great, I think, that we're going through this Bible reading plan. I just love that we're going through this Bible reading plan together because, because you see, when you're reading the Bible on a regular basis, you will find in the course of life that you'll enter into some scenario and God will bring something to your mind that is totally relevant to the scenario that you're in. You know, a few weeks um, ago, I was talking with someone who, uh, who had come to faith. And he said to me, you know, this stuff, it really works. And I thought, well, you know, that's not usually how we talk about faith. But I thought, yeah, that is exactly right. The skeptics will tell you that when God speaks to you through these scenarios, through, through, um, through a verse that comes to mind, that it's just coincidence. It's just the way our minds naturally work. 
But when you have enough coincidences and and you start to follow through on some of those convictions that you feel, and you start to experience greater freedom in your life, you begin to say, you know, something deeper than just chance must be at work here. When Jesus says he will give us peace that passes understanding, he does. He's a living and active God. When he says, follow my teachings and it's going to pay off in the long run, it does. And that is why I think we've got to be compelled to share this with other people. God is real. He's living. He's a living God. And he really does speak through the Bible. And he speaks in other ways, too. Another way that God speaks is through his people. I was recently having this uh, meal with some friends and uh, talking to this one guy. He was sharing about uh, how he was trying to share his his faith with his friends at work. And, you know, he he would go to lunch. He'd bring his Bible, maybe bring something up. And as I heard him talk about it, I thought, man, that is great. That he is, he is going out of his way to share his faith with his friends, with his, his co-workers. And then I thought, man, this guy's putting me to shame the way he's sharing his faith with his friends. Now, granted, all of my co-workers work for the church. <laughs> but, you know, I, I realized in that moment, you know, God is... I need, to be taking, I need to be taking more risks in sharing my faith. And God spoke to me in that moment. God also speaks through other people. When Brian or anyone else gets up here to give a message, you should be open to hearing what God might want to be saying to you through the message. And the same goes for a small group discussion, when you're in small group. And, and, and really any conversation with another Christian, God can speak through you. And he can speak to you through other people. As Christians, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And he will use other people to speak into your life. God speaks through his people. God also speaks through our circumstances. Sometimes God will open doors and sometimes he will close them. If you're seeking guidance from God regarding two, two different scenarios in life, and, and you, you, you really thought about it, you've prayed about it, you've been thinking about it, asking for wisdom, and they both feel like good options. They're both good. Nothing wrong with either one of them. Sometimes God will use a circumstance to direct you in a certain, in a certain way. Not always, but sometimes. This past week, uh, Shua shared with me how uh, she and Walt were one time vacationing down here in Columbus. And while they were here, they began to look at the area and um, think about, you know, if it would be a nice place for them to live. And they really, they really liked Columbus. They, they saw a lot of benefits to moving here. Um, but, but as they really kind of thought about it, they said, you know, Walt, Walt really has a good job where we're at. And, you know, we, we, we like the church that we're going to. We feel really well connected there. And so for those reasons, they decided, you know, we're not going to move here. They decided to stay put. Well, sometime later, in the course of a week, the company that Walt was working for got sold, and they told him he would be laid off. And in that same week, their church went through a church split. And they thought, well, maybe God, is, maybe, maybe God is trying to say something here. And, of course, they did end up moving here to Columbus. Not every coincidence you experience in life is going to be the voice of God. 
But if you pay attention to the alignment of different voices in your life, different scenarios, you know, something, something someone said, something that, that you, that you read that, a scripture you read that morning, you're going to see these things align. Sometimes you're going to see them align, and you're going to know, God, God is speaking to me. I know it. In Genesis chapter 41, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, and at the end he says, As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decreed by God, and he will very soon make them happen. Essentially, Joseph is able to see that these two very odd dreams, you know, they're different, but they're also remarkably similar, were not just a coincidence. God was speaking through these dreams. And, God, and Joseph was very familiar with God speaking to him. He had been used to discerning God's voice in his life. And so he recognized immediately, God is speaking here. Sometimes God's voice is hard to discern. Sometimes we want to hear from God, but he's silent. But sometimes the voice of a Christian friend, a scripture reading you read that morning, a scenario you're in, they're all going to come together, and something in your spirit will say, I know it. I know God is speaking to me. And you'll, you'll also know, I have to step out and do this. Because to do anything different would, would essentially be to run away from God. Joseph explains to Pharaoh what these dreams mean. There will be seven years of bumper crops in the land. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. If the king of Egypt will save up all the extra crops from the first seven years, then he, his, his, his country will have food when the crops fail in the, in the seven years of famine, and the people won't starve. Pharaoh listens to this interpretation, and he's fully persuaded. In fact, he's so persuaded that he puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. He says, no one will move a hand or foot in Egypt without your approval. And so Joseph becomes second in command in Egypt, and he's especially in charge of saving these crops from the first seven years. Well, sure enough... Year one comes around, and the harvest is a bumper crop. And so Joseph takes a portion of these crops, and he stores them for the government in these, uh, in these granaries, these storage, large storage buildings. The same thing happened the second year and the third year. And the passage tells us there was so much grain, like sand on the seashore, that they, they could not even keep track of how much they had. It was just so much. Now, I think it's important to remember here that the people weren't just donating their grain to the government. Joseph was taxing them, and he wasn't just taxing them lightly. Joseph was amassing large amounts of grain. He taxed them so high that, that, when, seven years, that when the seven years of famine came, Egypt was able to take care of not just its own people, but the surrounding nations as well. Can you imagine how much grain he would have had to save? Now, naturally, the people were overjoyed by these taxes. <laughs> Thank you, Egypt, for saving my money for me. Thank you for raising the price of wheat by reducing the supply. Thank you, Joseph. No. No. I've never met a person who was thrilled about, uh, you know, losing their hard-earned money. Joseph was taxing the people heavily. And as the years went on, people probably began to, to pressure him. Joseph, why does Egypt need any more grain? Your containers are overflowing. If I were in Joseph's situation, I would probably begin to wonder if, you know, do I need to save any more? The people are pressuring me. My approval rating is low. We've got more grain than we know what to do with. 
why not just let the people keep the grain? But Joseph remembered the interpretation of the dream. The bad years are going to be so bad that the good years will be just forgotten from memory. He chose to obey month after month, year after year. He continued to obey by saving grain. Obeying again and again. This is our third action that requires faith. We must be willing to obey again and again and again. It is one thing to obey God once. It is a whole nother ball game to obey him day in and day out. From time to time, Brian uh, will tell this story about um, some friends he had growing up who would wear these T-shirts that said, uh, I'm not doing it. And uh, he, he reminisces on the story, you know, how he, how he later found out that they were, in fact, doing it. And I heard, I, when I heard this, I, I told Brian, you know, I wonder what it's like to wake up in the morning and to put on a T-shirt that is just such a blatant lie. I mean, how, how can people be okay with that in their minds? And uh, he said something that I thought was perceptive. He said, you know, they, they probably weren't doing it at that particular time. They, they had probably repented to God and asked for forgiveness and had, uh, had felt like they, they could wear the T-shirt again. Which is a little, little ridiculous because it's kind of like saying, I'm not doing it right this moment. But I thought his comment was perceptive because people go through struggles like this. Struggles where they struggle with sin like an, an addict struggles with an addiction. They have a period where they're clean. And then they have a period where they relapse. And, they, and then they have a period where they're clean again. Here's the thing. Obeying that one time takes a lot less faith than obeying day in and day out. When Joseph imposes the grain tax, he doesn't just make this faith decision and then forget about it. Every day he had to renew his decision to obey God, to have faith in God, to believe that his obedience would pay off. Eugene Peterson wrote this book that, uh, that he entitled, it was about the discipleship, the nature of discipleship, and he entitled it, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I kind of like that phrase because I think it's relevant to what the Christian life is like. In the early 1800s, there was this man by the name of Adoniram Judson. He was a, uh, a man who felt called to reach out to these people um, who lived in Burma. Burma, if, if you're not familiar, is, is just south of China, and it's just west of Vietnam. Tiny, it's a tiny country, but it's actually pretty well populated. Um, and so Judson felt called to reach out to these people, and he became a missionary. And he traveled to Burma with uh, his wife, who was pregnant at the time. And they became some of the first missionaries to Burma. Judson served in Burma for almost 40 years. Serving in Burma was an incredible sacrifice for him. It was unbelievably difficult. 108 degree heat. You know, for some of us, that would be all, that's, that's all it would take. We would just say, you know, I, I, I think God's calling me somewhere else here. <laughs> all sorts, they faced all sorts of rare diseases and sicknesses. The Buddhist influence was, was strong there, and, and people were skeptical. They were skeptical of these Westerners. They were even hostile. And during his early years there, um, Judson lost his wife and all three of their children. 
In fact, the first children died on board the boat as they were heading down to Burma. He lost his entire family, and time after time, he would see colleagues go to, to, to one disease or one illness. Judson remarried, and then he lost that wife to an illness as well. On top of all the difficulties of serving in Burma, for the first six years, Judson did not see a single conversion. Six years. After ten years, he had 18 Christians. Ten years. I'm sure as Judson looked at his life at that point, he began to feel like he was not a very fruitful missionary. But Judson knew, he knew that he was called by God to do this and that he had to obey. And so he faithfully kept working for years and years to preach about Jesus and to translate a Bible into Burmese. Eighteen years after his arrival, something began to change in Burma. There was, there was something new in the air. And there began to be all this spiritual interest in this person named Jesus. And Judson writes, you know, we, we had 10,000 tracts that we gave away this year, and we didn't give any of them away unless somebody asked for it. They had to ask for it. We weren't just giving these away. They had to ask for it, specifically. 10,000. It's, it's only been 200 years since Judson headed into Burma. Um, but today, statistically, um, we estimate that there are 2 million Christians in Burma. A long obedience in the same direction. Obedience day in, day out is more difficult. I believe, it, I believe it is more incredible than the one-off scenarios. Sometimes we look at people we admire and we say, you know, I'd love to change the world the way he changed the world. We see, we see those flashy moments where the Red Sea is parted. We see, we see you know, someone feeding 5,000 with, with a few loaves and some fish. We see a clutch decision like Todd Beamer. On 9-11, when he, took, when he and a couple others took down that plane, we say, I'd love, to, I'd love to obey like that. But we forget that God was preparing these people for years. Day in and day out, obedience in the details. This was their training for those later defining moments. And when those special moments came, they did what they did every single day. They obeyed. When you obey day in and day out, it's a lot easier to obey in the defining moments of your life. How might God be preparing you right now with a test, a trial of obedience? When it comes to being honest, when it comes to battling that chronic temptation, when it comes to tr changing the way you treat your family, when it comes to initiating spiritual conversations with the unchurched, when it comes to working hard to train your children, when it comes to caring for someone who is hard to love, will you obey when you feel like it? Will you compromise when you're tired? Or will you keep on obeying day after day because you believe that God knows what's best for your life, because you have faith that what he says is going to pay off in the long run? Joseph had become like a king in Egypt, but his brothers were still in uh, Canaan, and they were actually running out of food. Two years of bad crops had nearly wiped out their entire uh, storehouses. And so they make this long trek to Egypt, and they come before Joseph. They don't know it's him. They come before the king of Egypt, and they say, Oh, please, 
Please let us buy grain from you at exorbitant prices. The passage tells us that Joseph recognizes them instantly, but they don't recognize him at all. And in chapter, chapter 42, verse 7, he says this, Where are you from? He speaks roughly. From the land of Canaan, they replied, We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he had had about them many years before. He said, You are spies. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. No, my Lord, they exclaimed. We have simply come to buy food. We're, we're, we're actually all brothers, members of the same family. We're honest men, sir. We're not spies. Yes, you are, Joseph insisted. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Sir, they said, there are actually 12 of us. We, 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 we swear to you, we're all brothers, sons of a man living in Canaan. Our youngest brother is back there with, uh, with our father right now, and our other brother, he's not with us anymore. But Joseph insisted, as I said, you are spies, and this is how I will test your story. I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you will never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. One of you must go and get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you in prison. And then we'll find out whether your story is true. By the life of Pharaoh, if it turns out that you don't have a younger brother, then I will know that you are spies. And he puts them all in prison. The passage tells us that Joseph remembered the dreams he had about his brothers, bowing down to him. You can be sure he also remembered how they treated him. While they were in prison, one of them said, This has all happened because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his terror, his anguish, and heard his pleadings. But we wouldn't listen. That's why this trouble has come upon us. We saw the terror in his eyes. We heard him pleading for his life as he sat at the bottom of that pit. But we didn't care at all. Have you ever been hurt like that? Pure hatred, rage, and anger that is bent on inflicting as much pain as possible. Have you ever been hurt like that? Have you ever been suffering and, you, and, and your friend knew it? They knew it. And they could have helped, but they didn't care at all. Not an ounce of compassion. People run into the world will say all sorts of things that, are, that can be really hurtful. Maybe they didn't even mean to hurt us, but it, but it really hurts. But I think, I think those injuries pale in comparison to the injuries we receive from our, from our own family, those closest to us. The ones who are supposed to love, not hurt. Sometimes it comes in the form of an angry outburst. Words fly that leave permanent wounds. Sometimes it's neglect and apathy. A lack of attention month after month makes you feel like you mean nothing to them. Sometimes it's just a bad habit of critical remarks and a negative attitude, but it hurts. One time at youth group, we had this handout that uh, discussed, you know, had different options for how we respond to these scenarios in our lives. And there were a few different options, and uh, we kind of discussed, you know, what, what's, what's your typical response to injury? And it was interesting to see how pe different people respond differently to these situations. Some of the common responses that we had that night... Um, were to get mad, to get depressed, to get even, or to throw a tantrum. If you're like me, 
you, you go with the escape route. You want to escape from the situation. You want to withdraw into yourself. I think sometimes it can be so tough just to let the other person know, you know, you hurt me. Especially if it's been a little while, it's like you're, you're just ripping that wound right open again. What if the person denies that they did anything wrong? What, what if, what if they, they just don't even care? It makes it even worse. What if they hurt me again? There's a lot of reasons we might be afraid to open these things back up again. As Joseph looked at his brothers, he had a hard time opening that wound again. It was safer not to let them know who he was. Not to mention, he was still angry at them. Why should he forgive them? They hadn't repented. They hadn't apologized. Why should he do that? Who knows whether they'll apologize? Who knows whether, whether they'll even be sincere? In his uncertainty, he just sends them to prison. For three days, he wrestles with what to do. He had all the power, he, all the power to get back at them. If he wanted revenge, he totally could have taken it. But he knew the revenge wouldn't heal those wounds. I think at the core of all wrong responses to injury is a belief that the situation is hopeless. This situation is too painful. It is hopeless. So I'm going to leave. This situation is too painful. It is hopeless that they could ever understand my pain. So I'm going to make them feel my pain. I'm going to hurt them back. This situation is too painful. It is hopeless. I'm going to stop telling them how they've hurt me. I'm going to stop talking. As Joseph looked over at his older brothers cowering at his feet, I bet he considered, I wonder if we could ever be brothers again. Or if it's better just to leave this alone. Can I? Can I stop being angry about this? Is that even possible? Will I ever stop feeling the pain? I wonder if I will ever stop feeling, having those nightmares of being in that pit. Will they treat me like a king, but hate me behind, their ba- my, hate me behind my back? Maybe it's just better to leave it alone. But somewhere in those three days, Joseph takes a small step. It's a small step, but with big faith, believing that reconciliation is possible. Believing that God can take their heinous, selfish plot to kill him and turn it into something good. It takes a while for Joseph to reveal his identity to his brothers. But you can see in the passage, if you take a look at it sometime, there's this change in the way he starts to treat them from that point on. He made a decision to believe, God can heal my nightmares. God can heal my anger and my pain. God can make us a loving family. God can heal my hopelessness. So I'm just going to let them know who I am. I'm going to let them know that I forgive them. And, if, and if, if, they, if I get hurt again, I'm just trusting God to take care of me. And so he says, guys, I'm Joseph. And they're speechless. Is my father still alive? I'm Joseph. And they're they're just stunned. He says, guys, come here, come here. I am Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery in Egypt. And he hugs them and he weeps over them. And he tells them how he forgives them. And then he tells them how he's manager 
of Pharaoh's household and ruler over all of Egypt. And they don't need to worry about anything because he's stored up years of grain, years worth of food for the entire country, and he's going to take care of them. They should all come to live with him in Egypt. And the family does come to live with him in Egypt, and they're like royalty because of their connection to Joseph. It's a happy ending. There's this one comment that Joseph makes at the end of Genesis that I think needs to be mentioned. Jacob, his father, has, has died, and his brothers, you know, are, are realizing, you know, father's dead, you know, maybe, maybe he hasn't really forgiven us, maybe he's just treated us well because the father's been around. And they were worried that Joseph would begin to mistreat them. And so they come to Joseph and they cower at his feet again. And they say, you know, Joseph, we're sorry for what we have done. Please forgive us. And this is what Joseph says. Listen to what he says. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God to judge and punish you? As far as I'm concerned, what you meant for evil, God turned to good. He brought me to the high position today that I have today so I could save the lives of many people. Now, don't be afraid. God can take any situation, no matter how broken, and bring something good out of it. What his brothers meant for evil, God turned into good. Would you stand?